Welcome to Hope for the Heart. I thank you for joining us today. And if you have not been joined, been listening to Hope for the Heart, then I welcome you here. This is a broadcast that right now we happen to be studying uh, prophetic scriptures. And I uh, have been uh, on the actual book of Revelation, the last book of the New Testament. And I am doing an exegesis through there, which that don't let that word scare you. It just means I'm going to do an exposition or talk about every single uh, passage a phrase or a verse in the entire book of Revelation. And believe it or not, it, does, it doesn't take that long if you uh, have a systematic approach. And so I'm approaching this very systematically. I'm in chapter uh, 9, beginning in verse 13. I finished the first 12 verses last week. And so I want to bring this today. Let me give you uh, the reference point so, and read it to you so you can have that and you can begin to uh, think through this. If you would like to follow along, then I recommend you get a copy of God's Word. I read out of the New American Standard uh, text, Bible. Uh, you might uh, have a different translation, but they read very similar. So I want to give you the context, Revelation chapter 9, verse 13, and I will read this for you. The Word of God says in verse 13 of Revelation chapter 9, And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. One saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year were released so that they might kill a third of mankind. And the number of the armies of horsemen were two hundred million. I heard the number of them. Well, as you can see, this is a, a very disturbing text. Even at surface reading, we may not even at first read know what all this is talking about, but it doesn't sound good. You would have to admit that. And so here we are opening up the seventh seal that has been broken. And upon breaking the seventh seal, it reveals seven trumpet judgments. These are jumping, a trump, a judgments, excuse me, that uh, are in the end times. This, none of this has happened yet. This is uh, right now with the time frame that we're estimating right here where we are in, in Revelation 9. We're probably around uh, midway or a little past midway of the, of the tribulation period, uh, known as the Great Tribulation Period. And the tribulation time is unfolding for us in a seven-sealed manner, so to speak. You remember the scroll which was uh, records the takeover of the earth by its rightful ruler, Jesus Christ. Each phase of that takeover is revealed as the next of the seven seals as they are broken. And so we're, you can see here in verse 13, the sixth angel sounded, and I heard the voice of the four horns, uh, voice of the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. This is actually uh, the seventh seal being broken. We found that in chapter 8, verse 1. It says that when he broke the seventh seal, and it reveals seven trumpet judgments. <clears throat> that may be a little bit confusing, but if you'll just uh, uh, hang in here with me, or you you might want to go back and read that, but we are in the, the sixth of those trumpet j judgments. And we're answering, actually, chapter 8, which was in verse 13. And it says that there are three more woes coming. That means more severe, more deadly kinds of judgments that were coming after the first uh, four. And so we're, we're at that time. The first woe has passed. Look at verse 12. The first woe is passed. That is verses 1 through 11 of, of chapter 9 of Revelation. And now we're in the second one. And these are very, 
very bad judgments. Uh, I, I can't even fathom what it's going to be like. Because remember, now we, we, we get up, we go to work, we, we watch the news, or we go to the store, we put our kids in the schools, and we live in normal lives. I know that there's a lot going on in the country with COVID and with crime on the increase and, and inflation is out of hand, and there's so much. But still there is this norm of life that continues. But during the tribulation period, it will not be like that. Nothing will be as it has always been. It is going to be a very disturbing time. As I even read last two weeks on the the, uh, first verses of chapter 9, on these demons that are are going to be released from the pit of hell, and they're going to torment men. That is important to remember. They are not given permission to kill people, but they are given permission and the power of, uh, in, in chapter uh, 9, verse 5, they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment the, everybody, all the unbelievers on the earth, torment them uh, like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. But the torment, even though it's not designed to kill, and they don't have the, the, uh, the power to kill man, it does say in verse 6 of chapter 9, in those days men will seek death, and they will not find it, for they will long to die, and death flees from them. That means, in my opinion, I think that means, that the the torment will be so great, so bad, that people are going to desire death. They're going to think and wish they they could just die, and it would all be over. It's going to be that bad. But they have a tormented time of five months. And then as soon as that's over, we get the feeling that this next woe is coming. In fact, when you read verse 13 of chapter 8, I looked and I heard an, an angel flying in midheaven. Some translations say eagle, flying with, and saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth, because the remaining blast of the trumpet, that's three more blasts of trumpet, or more three more woes, are about to sound. And so it, you get the feeling that they are... Especially these first two are rapid fire. So as soon as that five months of torture is over, then boom, this next section, verses 13 through 21, happens. And you're going to see, this is not a good time to be living on the earth. Uh, I certainly uh, hope and pray that our assessment and the teaching of the rapture of the church is true and accurate which means the church will be gone during this time because I can't imagine having to, be, uh, having to go through this period of time on the earth. It is going to be a horrible time on the earth. You don't want to be here. However, you also want to understand as believers today, why would God allow us to have this information? What are we to do with it? Are we just to be smart with it or just uh, be glad that we have it? No, there. I think there is a, a command. I think there is a, a, a desire here that we, we take this and not only grow by it, but encourage more and more people to read the Word of God and to present the gospel to them so that they might be saved. So the first thing I want you to look at in this section, chapter 9, verse 13, is a command, and that command is given right here in verse 14. Uh, it says, One saying with the sixth angel who had the trumpet released the four angels. But before that, it actually says something that the sixth angel sounds, and 
We don't know who this is. We don't know. It just says, I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. And so we've already realized that God has been judging man in, the, in chapter 8 and chapter first part of 9, judging man with the final flurry of judgments called the day of the Lord. And the land has been affected, plants, animals, sea, fresh water, the sky, you remember, uh, and then the, ter- the terrifying demonic pollution from the last week we saw this. Hell has already opened up, and out have come all these millions of captive demons who have been bound there, and they've already been released. So the world has seen a lot. And then this voice, John, remember, this is a vision, and John is hearing this voice. The earth does not hear this voice. John hears the voice, and the voice is is not identified for us. However, the location from which it comes is identified, and I think that tells us that the Holy Spirit is emphasizing this. Notice that it comes from one of the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. Now, we've already seen this altar in chapter 6, and it was an altar of vengeance that we saw there. And without spending a lot of time on this, because this is one of those kinds of lessons where I could spend literally uh, message after message after message on this, uh, and, and it would probably bore you to tears. But there's this much information here. But this is the same altar as found in Revelation chapter 6, where the, uh, the, uh, which we saw it as the uh, altar of vengeance. But it's also it's a picture of the one on earth in the Exodus chapter 30. This altar is very important as it begins to unfold in its meaning. It's a visionary replica that John sees, a heavenly replica of the actual golden altar of incense described in Exodus chapter 30, which was an altar of mercy. And so the original altar of incense, or the original altar that this is a picture of in heaven that John sees, is related to the one in the Old Testament. And so we know that from looking at this and all that is given to us there in Exodus, that on the basis of sacrifice, we're able to have our entrance to God. And so sacrifice is what it's about there. Sacrifice is what is given to us in the book of Hebrews. And without sacrifice, we have no access to God. You see, it's very simple. No person whose sins have not been atoned for or who is still an unbeliever does not have access to God. Believers do have access to God. And we know that to be true. Without sacrifice to cover the sin, no communion with God is available. Sacrifice opens the way to God. And of course, the sacrifice comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. So it was an altar where prayers rose symbolically, prayers for forgiveness, mercy, based upon the fact that sins had been atoned for. So they always knew, the Jews always knew that it was an altar of mercy. That is a very important thing here. When this angel gives us this uh, to John or speaks to John in this point, then we see this as very, very important because it's referencing the, the altar of mercy, but yet here it has now become an altar of vengeance in chapter 6, but here on this chapter, now in verse chapter 9, uh, verse 13 and 14, it is moved from an altar of vengeance to get this, an altar of judgment. And here, the unimaginable to the Jewish reader or the mind would be a voice that comes out of that very same altar that was 
pictured in the Old Testament is an altar of mercy. The voice that cries from the horns of this altar is not a voice that says, I forgive, or you have been given, you have been granted mercy, or you have been given grace. It is a voice that calls for a devastatingly terrible time, a devastating demonic destruction. In other words, this voice is calling for demons to be released upon the earth. Out of that altar, uh, from that altar. So I, I think it, it, it tells us something about this. And you know, we, we, we know the Old Testament very clearly says that God says before the flood, or what we call the antediluvian civilization, he said, my spirit will not always strive with man. And so... I think this is a picture of that, and we course we could go into Hebrews, but the point is the Lord is going the Lord is going to judge uh, the people on the earth. It's a terrifying thing, Hebrews says, even to fall into the hands of the living God. There is no mercy here in chapter nine, verses thirteen and following, coming from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. We don't see mercy here. This is where, in fact, some writers even say this is where mercy ends. No, this voice says to the sixth angel, the one whose voice comes from that that spot, that point placed before God, says to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now, that's interesting because uh, this is, like I said, it is a command coming from what would should be known as the altar of mercy, and it's still, I mean, it is at this point an altar of judgment. And so that is the the command. But the control, I want you to see the control that is here. Release the angels, the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. They are bound. They are in They are captive. So that tells us a bit about who they are, because if you'll notice in verse 14, it says, uh, verse 14 is to release, and then verse 15, and the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, day, month, and year were released. So they're in in bonds, but it doesn't say who they actually are. You see, it's fascinating because who are the angels that are bound? Well, First of all, never in Scripture does it say holy angels are bound. You just don't find that. Why would they need to be bound? The only reason you would bind someone would be to prevent them from doing what you don't want them to do, right? I think that would be right. So holy angels, it cannot be. Holy angels don't do what God doesn't want them to do. Holy angels do exactly what God wants them to do, so they're not bound. Did you get that? There's a lot of negatives in there. Uh, you don't have to bind holy angels, in other words, to prevent them from doing what they would uh, would be doing with the will of God. They're going to do the will of God. So the fact that they are bound should make it clear to anyone these are not holy angels. These are fallen angels, or what we call demons. And th- I think that's very important to understand that because this is a voice coming from the very presence of God to the angel who has the trumpet ready to sound the trumpet and and that command is to release these four demons. That's what this actually is saying. This is a perfect tense verb which means that something has been bound 
Something bound them in the past with continuing results. In other words, they are in a state or condition of having been bound. So here are four bound demons, or fallen angels. Uh, They're just another segment of Satan's force. Now, obviously, Satan doesn't want them bound. He'd like to have his demons running loose all over the universe all the time. The demons don't want to get sent there either. We looked at that last week. When Jesus came up against the demons in Mark chapter 5, they pleaded with Jesus, don't send us to the pit. Remember that? Jesus doesn't want them bound. I mean, Satan doesn't want them bound. Jesus does want, did bind them. Does not want them bound. Satan doesn't. And here's another group of four that he has bound, reminding us that God is in control and sovereign over all demonic forces. So, that's a very interesting thing to note because... Who are these angels? Well, they are demons. They are are demons that have been bound. And uh, that brings me to the next point of the outline. Number one is the command to release. Number two is the control. means they are in in chains and being bound. But number three is a, a curious statement is the way I'm phrasing this part of the outline. Because it is so broad here, I got to have to be careful uh, to actually keep it in track or keep it in check here. But these are these are four, apparently in charge of a massive demon horde. Not those on earth, those who have been, uh, and not those who have been uh, up in the space battling angels who now, according to Revelation 12, have been cast down. This is a different group. This is a whole new group. Now, interesting enough, this curious statement is found, I want you to see this, because you probably, uh, unless you've done some study on this, would not catch this as being very important or relevant. But look at what verse 14 of Revelation 9 says. One saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, that that angel is the the one that's uh, speaking the voice from the golden altar, Release the four angels, now where are they, who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now, we can't just skip over that. I mean, there may be people who could skip over that, but I need to explain just a little bit about that. And and I use that word a little bit facetiously. I could give you two sermons probably on this uh, because it is that important. So I I have to go here. It's a very curious statement here. If you read Jeremiah 6, I won't take the time to read it. You'll note that in Jeremiah there is describing the day of the Lord several times. He references or refers to Euphrates. And when the day of the Lord hits, it's going to involve some action associated with this location near the Euphrates River. I think it's the same exact location. Now, the immediate question comes to mind as I look. Why are these demons bound at this Euphrates, at the great river Euphrates? Why has God got them captive there, of all places? Well, if you look back a bit in history, and I know you can't always just do that, and so I'll help you with that just a little bit. Look back a little bit in history, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on here, just a, uh, just, a, just a little bit, just to give you a... a some reference point. The significance, I think, is of, of, there's, of this is, is it comes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. You think, boy, you're going back a long way. 
Yeah, it's kind of scary. If I go back all the way to the Garden of Eden, I'm going to work my way all the way back up. No, I'm not going to do that. But there, in the, if you read about in the Garden of Eden, you remember there were four rivers in the Garden of Eden. This was one, and of course the one, that was the pre-flood one different than the one after the flood. In other words, that just says there's two river Euphrates, one before the flood and one after the flood. But the original Euphrates river before the great flood in Genesis chapter 6, before that flood, the Euphrates was in the place where of Satan's actual deception of Eve or Adam and Eve. That was right in the very heart of the Garden of Eden. It was in the area where Satan first began his assault on man. The river Euphrates, uh, in other words, has a, a very interesting history. Uh, I, somebody ought to probably do a book on this. I didn't see any books on this, but there probably are people who have written a lot more about it. But the river Euphrates uh, begins in the Aramean, uh, Aramean uh, mountains, Aramean mountains, I'm saying that right, some of the highest of the earth, flooded in the springtime and, and with melting snow. It, it, the, the dictionary goes on to say it goes all the way down the Tarsus Mountains and down through the Mesopotamian Valley to all the way to the Persian Gulf. All the way through that area of the world, it's the most important, longest, and biggest of all rivers in Western Asia. It was the place, actually, what we're talking about. It's, it's the place where sin was first known. It's the place where uh, you could look at it as, as the place where uh, the sin first took place, uh, misery first was told, first laid out, or the first lie was told, or the first murder was committed, the first grave was dug. There's so many ways you could look at this area being a first for so many things, and all of which are bad. The Euphrates River was the scene of some of the great apostasies before and after the flood. The Euphrates Rivers, a river was the scene of the rise of Israel's greatest and, and, and most uh, powerful or oppressive enemies of its time. They've always been in that area. The area around the Euphrates River was the scene of the long years of, of, of wearisome captivity. Uh, the Euphrates River was the scene of the rise of those great world empires uh, that oppressed God's people. We see so much of this in, in say, even Daniel, the Babylonian Empire, the, the Medo-Persian Empire. They were in the place of four great... Uh, they're in that place, I think we can see, uh, through through looking back at some of these places in, in, the, in the scriptures, four powerful demons or magnets of evil are chained by God, and they have in their hands the power to do awful destruction. And God has restrained them. But here we're coming to a point where these that have been restrained by God are going to be released by God. Now, that's interesting because... This place is not a good place. This is an evil place. It is probably known as a demonic place. The Euphrates, according to Genesis, Deuteronomy, Joshua, many of those books are also the eastern boundary of the promised land. Just so you can get an idea. The very eastern boundary. Remember the west is water. The east is the eastern boundary is the, is the, uh, uh, the river. It's the Euphrates River. And so we look at this. It's also the eastern boundary of the Roman Empire, which is to be restored and revived at this time under the Antichrist. We're still, in fact, we're going to look at this later. It's the place where the city of Babylon is. You'll remember in Revelation 17 and 18. We're going to hit this even more there. 
Both the final forms of world religion and the final form of the world economy are called Babylon. And boy, this we can, we're going to get into this, so I hope that you can come and visit with this website every week to hear where how we are progressing with this. This could, could well be the very demons who actually controlled Babylon, Medo-Persia, uh, the Greeks, the Greece, uh, Greek, uh, Greek Empire, and the Roman Empire. These could be those same ones that have been chained and, and in, in chains and that are being let go. But I want to read you something. Uh, I hope this, that you're, you're, you're kind of staying with me. But back in Daniel, just to show you how I got this kind of information, you see there's so much I have to read to even get tidbits of this. But back in Daniel chapter 10, Daniel has been praying, and he gets an answer from a good angel. And he, it says in verse uh, in, in Daniel chapter ten, verse ten: "Behold, a hand touched me, and set me on trembling, set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I am about to tell you, and stand up right now, for I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up." trembling. Well, who wouldn't? I would too. Then he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. Now listen to this. Listen to this. But the prince of the king of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me, or in other words, stopping me for 21 days. He stopped me. Now remember now, this is a good angel telling Daniel that he had one of the powerful demons stopping him. 21 days, he couldn't get freed. And so it says here in verse 13, 21 days, Michael, the archangel, the chief of princes, came to help me. For I have been left there with the kings of Persia. In other words, the demons in charge of these countries. Go down to verse 20. Then he said, Do you understand why I came to you? I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia, demon, and I am going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. Another demon. And so, I I just give you that so that you can see that a demon who was leading Persia from the satanic vantage point, Michael had to come and go and get him out of the way. And so, in in verse 20, you can see that there were demons associated with these various great world empires. These these are high-powered demons. Demons with a lot of authority. They were... Demons over Persia, Greece, Babylon, and Rome. And it may well be that these four great world empires had four great demonic powers over them, and these are the same ones that have been held in chains at the river Euphrates. Now, something else. As Satan had entered Eden and corrupted Eden in that same location, later on in the same part of the world, he started another corrupt influence after the flood, same area, and it's called the Tower of Babel. Now, oh, I, I, we could just we could just dive into this, and I'm just trying to whet your appetite for this 
because you you can't just get into everything when you're studying a book like this because it can lead you to some places that I'm not sure you'd ever even get back here. But the Tower of Babel, or the original Babylon in that same area of the world, came a complex of religions that was spawned through the, the Tower of Babel, came through this complexity of, of time and, and the, the, the tower itself, of pagan religiosity that involves astrology, uh, pantheism, polytheism, all kinds of false religions there. All that garbage, to quote one writer, he says, all that garbage has penetrated all over the world and it was originated at the Tower of Babel. Now, when all of that was scattered, and the languages were scattered. Well, guess what? Everywhere it was scattered, they took the religion and the false religion of Babel and populated the world with it. So you see, Euphrates is a demonic area that has spread its influence throughout all of the world. And so it is a central location. And it's at that spot that these angels have been bound and held. Look at what it says in verse 15, they have been in bonds and chains. Look at what verse 15 says of chapter 9 of Revelation. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released. In other words, what is that actually saying to us? Well, it is saying that God is in absolute total control. What does that phrase mean? Well, I think it's obvious. At the exact prescribed year, in the prescribed month, at the exact day, at the very hour which God has determined it will happen, guess what? They are released. Man, they are released. And so you look at that very area today, just before the release. They hadn't been released yet. They're in chains right now, in chains. But in that area today, it is utterly and totally without any Christian influence. That part of the world is as pagan, as, as one writer puts it, as pagan as pagan can be. Here are these four demons. They've been bound there. Seems to be the focus of their activity in the world. And of course, its proximity to Israel makes it a good launching point for all that they would like to do to destroy Israel, God's people. So here are these four demons. And the voice says, Release them. The release of the demons leads to a return to something that hasn't been there yet. And the first, remember the first group of demons in chapter 9, verses 1 through 12, were not allowed to kill. These demons will be allowed to kill. Now, I'm not going to be able to go anywhere past this because time is up and you can see, and I don't want to rush it and, and get rushed through this and not cover these kinds of things. So I must stop. So for now, this is William Rogers, and you've been listening to Hope for the Heart, a study of the book of Revelations. Revelation chapter 9, verses 13 through 21. That's the segment. In the passage, but we're, we're, it's going to be a little while before we get through verse 21. Actually, it's going to take one more time, and I think I can get through the rest of it. But these are a very interesting judgments. And I, I look at this, and I've asked myself all the way, what good 
does it do us to know about the judgments that we even teach? We're not even going to be here for these judgments. I think the answer is obvious, and that is to share the gospel, to be really at a point where we can share the gospel to all that need to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, it is the power of the gospel. God uses that for salvation. Listen to what Vance Havner once said. Uh, the famous southern preacher, I, I, you know, I can still hear his voice. He had a very unique voice. Actually, he graduated from my seminary, uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, where I graduated. But he says this, The real test of how much we believe a prophetic truth is what we're doing to warn men to flee from the wrath to come. To believe the solemn truths of prophecy, he said, and then make our way complacently through a world of sin and shame is not merely unfortunate, it is criminal. In other words, we need to be sharing with people the claims of Christ, the gospel of Christ. We don't have to worry what to say. Just share with them they need to be saved. They need to be born again. They need Christ in their life. He is the source of all hope and encouragement. You can only have Him for your encouragement. You're not going to get it in the world. In fact, you can see, look around the world today. Where do you see encouragement? You don't get it from the CDC. You don't get it from the COVID promises or, or problems. You don't get it from the economy. You can't get it from our government. You can't get it in many churches. You can't get it. But you can get it through Jesus Christ our Lord. I thank you for joining me today, and I encourage you to join us next time as we'll be looking at Revelation chapter 9, continuing verses 13 through 21. Thank you.